You guys don't have to clap, but I am very glad to be back with you. Um, for those of you who've been here for at least two years, uh, I got to come several times, not last summer, uh, this past summer, the summer before when Kevin was away on, and his family was away on sabbatical. Uh, fun fact is that here at Grace Fellowship, I took the only pulpit selfie I've ever taken in my life <laughs> as I took a picture so we could send to Kevin to make sure he knew his church hadn't burned down. Uh, but as I was thinking about it, Kevin, this is also the first time that I've ever preached in front of Kevin since seminary. And so this may be the last time I get invited back. So we're going to go all out. And uh, since this might be the last time, we're going to preach from the Old Testament. I know you guys do that a lot, but we're going to go uh, to Exodus 33. And uh, we've already heard this morning about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You heard about him in the prayers in the confession and in the forgiveness of sin that we heard this morning. You even heard about the gospel that is offered to you, the grace that is offered to you in the songs that we sang. And this morning, we're going to hear about that grace uh, from Exodus chapter 33. So if you would, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there now. If not, um, is it going to be on the screen? I believe it might be on the screen. We'll read the whole chapter, and uh, we're going to focus just on one little part. But Uh, Let's look now to the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. For if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please 
Show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, that is God, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to them, to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand, and you shall see my back. Take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, gracious Son, and loving Holy Spirit, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would bless this word to your people. Show us yourself, that we might know you, and that we might love you. We ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there's a lot in that chapter that we just read, uh, but I think to, in order to make things easier for us, uh, let's do a little bit of background work to catch us up. I'm not sure where uh, Grace has been going through uh, scripture for the last couple of weeks, but it's probably not been Exodus 31 and 32. Uh, many of you are familiar with the story of Exodus. The story, it starts off with Moses, right? Moses is uh, a special, he's given a special story about his birth. He's brought up in the house of the Pharaoh king, uh, and he's given a particular ministry to the people of Israel. And so the story shows how Mo God uses Moses to miraculously save the people of Israel. And the people of Israel had been in bondage of slavery for 400 years. And God uses Moses to bring them out. And he doesn't just bring them out and take them to a new place. He does a series of these incredible miracles. And the last of which is they're, they're crossing the Red Sea where the sea is around them on each side and they're crossing on dry land. And what you see from that point on in the rest of the book of Exodus up till now is this, is this really fascinating cycle of God's miraculous salvation followed by the people's, you would think maybe like thanksgiving, joy, and worship. And there's some of that there but it's followed by the people's grumbling, complaining, and turning away. And so every step along the way, it, God does something incredible for Israel, and Israel finds some way to grumble and complain about it. 
And so it, they're, they're standing there on the banks of the Red Sea. They've had the, the plagues where they've seen the sun blotted out. They've seen you know, the firstborn of all Egyptians die. Only those who had the blood of the lamb over their doorpost lived. And they're standing on the sea, and they look at Moses and say, well, you just brought us here to die. Like, we're, we're in trouble now. God takes them through the Red Sea, and you think like, okay, this is the point where they learn, and they get to the other side, and then God says, well, you know, you don't have anything to eat. I'm going to give you bread from heaven, and their response is, man, we're just eating a lot of bread out here. This is kind of, kind of bad. What can you do for us? And he says, okay, well, I'm going to give you water in a desert, and they're like, yeah, but we're still really thirsty. You know, can you, can you maybe give us some better water or more water? And it's just again and again and again, and there's a, a bit of a, a crux of, of this cycle. It's, it's not necessarily the climax of the book, but a crux of this cycle happens in Exodus 32. And so Moses goes up on the mountain, he meets God, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, and God gives him the law, and he gives him this pattern for living, how they're going to be a, a nation together. But he took a long time, and Moses took a long time to come down. And so the people of Israel turned to Aaron and they say, you know what, maybe, maybe he's not coming back. Can you maybe make us a new God? And so they cajole Aaron to make a golden calf. And they even say about this calf, while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, they say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And that's where we pick up in our story. As we pick up with a people who have shown time and again a reluctance to trust the God who saves them. And we see them now realizing that it feels like they're in trouble. They need some help. And as we think about this story, as we think about Israel, on the one hand, it's so unbelievable to us to think like, how could a people who saw a God do that respond in this way? And yet, I didn't ask you or even maybe challenge you that if you look at your own heart, maybe you find a similar inclination in your own heart. Because I would say that left to ourselves on our own devices, our hearts are fickle. We all get impatient and left to ourselves, we all grumble and complain about the things that have or haven't given to, been given to us. And we see this, maybe it's most obvious in young children uh, I didn't know I was going to preach this week until Wednesday, and before that, my wife read a funny post that she saw. I don't know, maybe it's Instagram or Facebook or somewhere. But you know, this it, it's a perfect illustration for how we all behave. And so, this post said, "Imagine it's Sunday morning. You've been allowed to sleep in all as long as you want, and you have no responsibilities, no chores, no work that day. There's fresh fallen snow on the ground." And your mom makes cinnamon rolls, serves you breakfast. But you are only three, so you are blind with rage. <laughs> because this is sometimes how we respond. Every, it's fine. Everyone who's had been a parent of young children has been in a moment, or of a young child, has been in a moment where you look down at a child, you're like, you have no idea what I've done to get you to this point. And yet, the response is anger or frustration. And it's funny to us in one way because it's true, but it's also funny to us just because it's, it's more obvious in kids. They're not doing anything different than we do. We've just learned to hide it better. We've learned to cover it better. 
Because when we look at this passage, when we look at the story of Exodus, what we find is that you and I are most often found in the place of Israel. Israel abandons their trust in God because they don't see him working in the ways that they want him to work, just as you and I do in our daily lives, just as we would have done if we had been in their place. But thankfully, the God of Israel and your God is a God who is slow to anger and who is abounding in steadfast love. And that's the conversation that we see here in chapter 33. In the midst of this congregation, we see, uh, or this conversation, we see two beautiful promises that God gives to Moses and to his people. And there's, there's so much that we could talk about here in this chapter, right? There's, there's just so much going on, but we're going to look at just really mainly one verse. We're going to look at the promise that God gives to Moses, God's promise to Moses. We're going to look at how that relates to God's promise to you. And then we're going to look at your life in the promised land. And so if you have a Bible, or maybe it'll be up on the screen, um, we're going to look at verse 14. And in verse 14, we see that God gives a promise to Moses. And there, God says to him, in the the light of this, this conversation where Moses is pleading, he's pleading for God's grace, God's answer is that my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And so let's take a little time to look at those two promises. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. It seems so simple and so direct. It's sometimes so simple and direct that we're tempted to skip over it. We, we like to go to the end of this chapter where Moses asks to see God's glory. But these two promises really undergird the entire story of Moses, the ministry of Moses, the work that God is doing in Moses. They're not the entirety of it, but they're two pillars of foundation for it. And so what does God tell Moses when he says, what is he saying when he says, my presence will go with you? Well, this is a bit of an idiom in the original language. If you were to translate it woodenly, it'd be something along the lines of my face will go and that's not a phrase that you and I would use, right? If, if I were to tell you, hey, I'm going to be with you, I wouldn't say my face will go. But what a beautiful part of that idiom, as we look at it, is that what God is getting at is he's telling Moses, my intimate presence will go with you. My face, my being, all that I, that I am is going with you. Whatever... God is getting at, he's saying that I will be with you and I will be with you wherever you go. Every step along the way, Moses, I will be with you and your people. And as wonderful as that promise is, we're sometimes tempted to read it as, well, like that makes sense. Moses asked for that and that's what God is saying, right? Moses said, hey, you haven't told me whom you're going to send with me you know, who's going with me, and and you might be tempted to skip over and say, well, God's saying he's going to go with you, but don't miss the grace that is in this response. It is filled with God's compassion. Because first of all, God had originally said that he wouldn't go with him, right? Earlier in the chapter, he says, I'm not going to go with you lest I consume you. He says, I'm going to send a messenger before you earlier. And in this response, when Moses asked For the Lord's grace, the Lord meets him in abundant grace and saying, okay, not only am I sending a messenger, I myself 
in going with you. And Moses seems to understand. So he knows what he needs, and he knows that if, if the Lord doesn't go with him, his, his whole mission, his whole ministry will be a failure. And God, God just doesn't say, he doesn't just say, like, hey, I'll, I'll clear a path for you. He doesn't just say, hey, you know, like that messenger I talked about, I'll send him with you. He doesn't even say, I'm going to send my army. He's the Lord. Moses knows him as the Lord of hosts. He doesn't say, I'm going to send my army with you. What he says is he says, my very presence will go with you. The one, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who miraculously saved them through a series of miracles, that is the God who is going with him. And that is the God who says this immediately after Israel was worshiping a golden calf. What a gracious God we have. And you know, as a, as a quick side note, uh, some people will, will often say that the, they love the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament seems harsh. And if you read passage like this, that, that answer doesn't make any sense. Because time and again, God is a God of compassion. You know, here is a God who says to a people that had just abandoned him and left him for another God and said, this golden calf, that's the one who brought us out of Egypt. This God says, I am willing to go with you. I myself, my very presence will go with you. But he doesn't just end there. Amazingly, it even gets better with the second promise because God also says to Moses that it's not just that I will go with you, but I will give you rest. And in a sense, as you're reading Exodus 33, this one almost seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, Moses didn't ask for rest, right? He asked a lot about things. He asked that, you know, if you know me, if I've really found favor in your sight, you know, who's going to go with me? And, but God says, I, my presence will go with you. I will always be with you, and I will give you rest. And so, yes, God, God did, he, he did give Moses what he was asking for, but he also gave Moses more because God knows what Moses needs here. God is giving Moses uh, more than, than he would ask or even imagine because Moses, who never considered himself up to the job for what he had to do, Moses, who never thought that he was the one who could carry forward this program, God is saying, not only am I going to go with you, but you can rest, Moses. This doesn't rely on you. It's almost as if God is saying, hey, Moses, I've got this. I am going to do the work. And again, these two promises, I believe, serve as the background for the rest of Moses' life and his ministry. Because God is with Moses at every step. And it's when Moses, uh, while Moses certainly works on behalf of the people, he intercedes for them, he organizes them, he leads them, while he does all that work, every single time they get in a jam, Every single time there's any sticking point, it is God who saves them. It is not Moses. And so Moses sees these two promises played out in his life time and again. He knows it is God. He knows God's gracious work. And an incredible, an incredible reality of this uh, passage, though, is that the Moses, the man who's described as talking to God face to face, He's given these promises. He sees them in play. And yet, Moses never would have imagined the length at which God was willing to go in sending his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ 
is the fulfillment of these promises. And so God gave promises to Moses, but in Jesus Christ, God gives promises to you, and they are these promises. In the person of Jesus Christ, God becomes a man. So not only is is God saying, my face will be with you, but he comes and takes on our flesh so that John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Moses never would have imagined God would do that. In fact, Peter tells us that this is the mystery of this gospel is something that even the angels longed to see into. That God would become man and come to earth, that he might be with us, that his presence might be with us, and that he might offer us rest. And so let's look now at how these promises apply to us. Because again, these words aren't just given to Moses, they're not just given to Israel, they're given to you this morning. And we see that all over the place in the New Testament, but perhaps the most clearly we see it in the book of Matthew. Matthew seems to retell this story in in different ways. But if you have your Bible and you want to flip over, you can turn to Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, I know that many of you here this morning will know both of these verses uh, very well. But in Matthew chapter 11, towards the end of the chapter in verse 28, Jesus is, is teaching and he says to the crowd, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. And so here we see the word become flesh, fulfilling this promise. God who came down from heaven, the one who previously promised Moses rest, is now saying, come to me, all of you who labor, and I will give you rest. And in that way, this promise isn't just for those of us here in the church. This is a promise for everyone. Everyone God has created, is offered this promise in Jesus Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I ask, like, of you this morning, are you tired? Do you feel weary? Are you barely making it, whether it's barely making enough money by the end of the month, whether you're tired of trying to earn your way to friendships, Earn your way to your parents' approval. Earn your way to, uh, the, to meeting your family's expectations. Earning your way to meeting your own expectations that run through your own head. No matter what labor is tiring you out, hear the promise of Jesus Christ that he offers you his rest. If you are tired from your labor, go to Jesus. He is the one who can provide rest for your soul. And I know as I, as I say that this morning, because I've, I've been here a few times, I've gotten to know some of uh, the folks here, I know that that's a promise that you hold on to and that you cherish and know. You have found rest in Jesus, and I'm grateful for that. But I also know that because the doors of this church are open widely because your homes are open to your neighbors, that there might be some people here who don't know that promise. You might hear that and say, you know, Jonathan, that sounds great, but Jesus isn't going to pay my rent next week. Or Jesus isn't going to put food on my table. 
And if you're in that second group, uh, I pray that you would just have the patience to hear just a few words. And the first is that I sympathize with you. That I know from my own life that uh, coming to faith in Jesus Christ doesn't fix all your troubles. It doesn't magically make your trouble go away. And so, in fact, Jesus tells us that following him uh, is a burden sometimes. We pick up our cross and we sometimes even go to our death to follow Jesus. And so know that Jesus sympathizes with you if you feel burdened by labor and you don't see how he could be the promised rest. Know that he knows how you feel. But I also hope you might hear the type of peace and the type of rest that he does offer, regardless of your circumstance. Because what Jesus does offer is he offers perhaps what is the most important. And we can sometimes not see this. Sometimes we're blinded, right? The Israelites were blinded. They didn't see uh, who God was when, when their needs were in jeopardy. And, and you and I do that too. But Jesus offers the rest of knowing that the most important works in your life are already done. Jesus, in him, he says, you are enough. Your labor is enough. You are worthy to be loved, and he loves you. Jesus Christ offers to meet with you. His presence offers to meet with you, and you are loved in him. And regardless of what your current circumstances are, your future is secure in him. And this was ultimately the rest that God was offering to Moses. Remember, he didn't, Moses didn't ask for rest. But God did tell him that the most important things were secured. God knew what Moses needs, needed, and he knows what we need. We need rest. We need rest from worrying if we'll be enough. Rest from wondering if it's all going to come crashing down around around us. Rest from wondering if we're going to make it to the next day. Rest from thinking that it's all up to us. That's where Jesus meets us. And that's the rest that he offers you. Is the last words that he spoke on the cross where it is finished. Jesus has done the work and he offers you rest in him. So if you labor and you tire, go to Jesus and find rest for your soul. And when you do, you'll find that he is ready and willing to meet with you because Jesus also promises you that he will be with you. His presence will go with you. And he says so at the end of the book of Matthew, another verse that many of you will know very well. In Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus has already gone to the cross and he's already been buried and he's raised and the resurrected Jesus is, is imparting some of the last words to his disciples. And at the end of that chapter, Matthew closes by saying, go therefore and make disciples of all the earth or all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because Jesus is promised to be with us. So he's promised us rest and he's promised to be with us. And there's this beautiful nuance that, that he says in this. Whereas God promised Moses, I will be with you. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, promises us, I am with you. 
and I will be to the end of the age. And so Jesus is with us and will be forever. And so let's take a few minutes and close our time by thinking some of the implications of these promises. We've already talked about some, but what would it be like if these truths were a part of our lives, part of our soul and directed our lives? And I've labeled this your life in the promised land. And so what changes when we find out that Jesus is with us and he gives us rest? Well, we've already mentioned some, several ways about how we think about ourselves. Uh, We know that he's with us, that we can go to him. But it also affects the way that we go out once we have received these promises and know them and they start affecting how we think and live. It also affects how we treat other people. And so I'm just going to mention just a few brief ways that what this truth might enable us to do or encourage us to do. And so Jesus has promised that he's with us. And for me, what that means is that Jesus has a ministry, which you might call a ministry of presence, a ministry where he is with his people. And since we are called to follow Jesus and to imitate him, it means that there's a similar ministry available to us, a ministry of presence. And what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus came down from heaven that he might be physically present with us. And he shows us there's real power in just being physically present with others. And so often you and I think that our job with other people is to fix the things that are going wrong. And Jesus says, you know, sometimes, yeah, sometimes that's okay. Sometimes we do need to put our, our skills and our uh, talents and our treasure to those things that we work at. But Jesus is saying foundationally to that is being present with other people. And let me offer that as an encouragement. How many times have you been in a spot where you felt like I had no idea what to say? It happens. The more you, you meet people where they really are, the more it happens. But also, the more you realize when you get there that what that person needs more than an answer, sometimes even more than an encouragement, is they just need your presence. They want someone to know that someone was able to meet me in a place where I feel broken or vulnerable or weak, and they were there with me. A friend of mine recently shared his own story about this, and it's so powerful that I hope you don't mind. I'm going to read what he wrote about uh, Jesus leading him to a ministry of presence. This is a friend who he, he's worked in ministry before, uh, and he's um, also seen a lot of hurt up close and personal, both to him and his family and to others. But he writes this. He says, in case you didn't know, for the last few months, I've been a chaplain for a level one trauma hospital. Also, in case you didn't know, a hospital chaplain is someone who specializes in sitting with people in immediate traumas like loss of limbs, burn victims, sex abuse, human trafficking, and others. But the most common in our work is to sit with the death and grief of family members. In these months, I've already witnessed some of the worst things imaginable. I've heard the guttural yells that still echo in my heart. 
I've witnessed more despair in tears than I've ever heard expressed through a lifetime of words. I've seen innocence lost, hope shattered, and emptiness seems to be swallowed, seems to swallow people whole. And another important place to note here is that 100% of the patients that come through my trauma center are kids children. My heart has broken so much in these months, but it never breaks in the moment. Instead, it it breaks in between the lines. I find the thoughts and images creeping up when I'm alone, when the adrenaline has gone back to sleep and I have no defenses, no warning. And then bam, I remember this despair looking up to me from those small faces. I recall the eyes of scared children darting around the room looking for family, looking for connection, looking for someone to tell them they're safe. In these moments, there is no pretense, no qualifiers, no answers. Death brings with it some of the deepest reverence a human heart might ever find. I genuinely can't stress enough just how grounding and humbling it is to constantly sit beside death, to know the chorus of grief from those around, to stand in the gap between someone who hates God but are equally desperate for him to show up. And there is one thing that keeps my own tears away during those times, and it's not the adrenaline. In fact, it's the fact that I might be the last person they see. And here's the kicker. Those eyes are never asking for trivia or answers. They're not asking questions about creation or the age of the earth. They're not asking for a book to help them better understand the Trinity. They're not asking if they read Romans 9 in the right way. They're not even worried about their own freedom. I've yet to meet someone in this situation who's asking for more knowledge or facts for rightness, even for vindication, or for something solidifying like contentment. They usually aren't even asking anything at all. No. Instead, they're desperately clawing for the space just to be seen, to be witnessed, to be enjoyed just a bit more to know that they are worth it. I get that people are afraid of death. I get that pastors and ministers can be too. I've seen it. I've even had a staff of elders thankful to me to be able to outsource visits when I was working at a church because they said they weren't gifted in that way. And I understand it's scary. My heart mourns far more than I'd like I fume with some of the deepest anger imaginable. I, have even, I even have the visceral thought of how am I going to face this today, far more frequent than I anticipated. But I say all this to simply let you know I'm praised for what I do and seem to be really valued by my team, not because what I say or have anything figured out, but because I openly admit that I don't and I'm just willing and eager to sit with the one who is suffering. If I'm honest, I'm never ready. In fact, I don't think I should be. 
I mean, death and suffering, especially of those who are innocent, are antithetical to the peace and joy we beg God for every day. And what's more, all my deep emotions and weighty experiences from this job and mine, perhaps the most constant hurt my soul finds comes from the relief I see from other Christians who thank me for doing this job. Why does that hurt? Well, my answer here, with the most gentle honesty, is that it appears that some Christians don't serve a group like this. They don't feel like they have to. And that makes sense if I were doing a job like a garbage man or a pilot or something. But this isn't a job. It's compassion. You see, and here's my encouragement to to us this morning. He says, I don't have gifts in this. I only have fruit. I have no power here. Just readiness. And while there are a thousand theological claims and proposals for my life, I have no answers. Only my presence. And I say this as a response to those who have praised my call. And I'm not giving faux humility. I sincerely find that I have nothing to offer people in this situation but my empathy and my attention. As if there's anything else they want. No degree is needed to love someone. There are no qualifications. There is no knowledge. I'm just responding to cries that some have grown deaf to. So consider your calling, friends. You don't need permission to love well. If you're one of Christ's beloved, there's no alibi for showing up for another. Love loud and reckless. Your awareness of hurt and hope is all that you truly need. And this is such a powerful example because most of us, when we go out from here and we meet the people in our lives, if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us, we don't have the answer of what they need and how to fix them. We can't see like God can and know what Moses really needs. We can't even offer like Jesus can, you know, to offer them rest. But every single one of us has the ability to see our neighbor, to meet with them, to be present with them. And in doing so, when you are really there, when you are truly present with them, you are showing them a Christ-like love. So when we leave today, I would challenge you to think about the ways that you might offer those around you your full and honest presence. Doing so will not only follow Jesus' example, but you will demonstrate the promises that he offers to us. The promises that he will be with us always. And the promises that he is the one who provides rest. No matter where you stand or think you stand before him this morning. No matter what thoughts have gone through your mind, the anger that you had at your friends or your loved ones, the sinful desires that are running rampant, no matter where you are, Jesus offers this to you. He offers life and hope and rest in a true presence. Go to him this morning. Seek him through your faith, through your prayers, through repentance of your sin, and a hopeful trust that he will meet with you there. He will meet you with his full presence, and he will love you.
He is gracious and good, and he is ready to do that for you this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are grateful for this word. We are grateful that you have promised to be with us and that you have promised to give us rest. And Lord, we are grateful that you have done so by sending your own son, Jesus, at great cost that we might be able to be present with him, that we might find rest. And in finding rest, that we might find life and hope in him. Holy Spirit, would you move in us this morning? Would you stir our hearts to long for those things, even ask for you to meet us, even at this moment, meet us with your forgiveness, meet us with your love, meet us with your presence. And would you stir us, Lord, to a faithful community where we can be present with one another. Thank you, Lord, for this work that you do. We give you praise and thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.